If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me once again to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be primarily this morning in uh, chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, so that's where you can find your way. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you certainly can use uh, the screen behind me, though I will want you to turn uh, later to uh, at least one other passage, and so I'd love for you to have your Bibles out. We're actually going to start, we're going to sneak back into chapter 21 briefly as we continue our series this morning on uh, the life of David. And this morning as we jump back into the story of David's life, we come to an account today that in many ways overlaps with uh, last week's episode. And uh, if, if you weren't here last week, I don't think you'll be completely lost, but Uh, Let me briefly remind you of where we are. Uh, David is on the run. He has fled uh, to the sanctuary of God, which was found in the city of of Nob. He was fed there by the holy bread. He was equipped there by the sword of Goliath. Both of those things were given to him, remember, by the priest. Ahimelech, who he engaged with. And from there, David made his way first to the cave in Adullam, then to Mizpah in Moab, and then finally to the forest of Hereth. Because as I said last week, when you're a fugitive, you've got to keep moving. You've got to stay on the run. And so David is moving rapidly. He is staying on the run. Since we are not exhausting the story of David, and what I mean by that is we're not looking at every passage that the Bible says or speaks to David's story, uh, today's episode is probably one that we could have skipped. Because what I'm about to read to you, if you haven't read it already, what I'm about to read to you is less about David specifically and more about what it means to be around David. To be, we might say, in David's wake. But I didn't want to skip this account, as dark as it is, because I think this account has some important truths for us to think about, important truths for us to meditate on, particularly in our day and age. As the sermon title has pointed you to, no one really wants to think about villains. But here's the reality. Here's the fact of life that I don't have to remind you of. Villains and violence are part of this broken world. And so the answer is not to put our heads in the sand and act like they don't exist. The answer is to think about them in light of God's word and in light of what he says about them. And so listen as I read, and I invite you, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's Word once again. We're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 7, which we read last week, and then we're going to jump forward to chapter 22, verse 6, and I'll read through verse 23. Listen as I read. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. 
Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give you every one of the fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law? and captain over your bodyguard, and honored in your house. Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let the king not impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priest of the Lord because their hand is also with David and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar said, told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. He who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. This is the word of the Lord. As we talk about this passage for the next few minutes, I'd like us to briefly consider two ways, 
two ways that God's word points us to Jesus and to the gospel this morning. And the first one is this. Following God's anointed costs. Following God's anointed costs. I acknowledge that this truth may not be the major thrust of this passage, but in our context, as I began to study this passage, this is the truth that I just couldn't get out of my head, that Ahimelech couldn't turn away God's anointed king to be, and it cost him everything. Let's talk about the story that we heard. Our story resumes with a quick camera turn to chapter 21, verse 7, and to Doeg, the last scene that we were at as David was asking for the bread. This important official of Saul is there. He's described in our text as the chief of Saul's herdsmen. But as I mentioned last week, one commentator says that he could be considered by us as essentially the head of Saul's secret police. And so there he is in the shadows watching God's anointed king to be. And the narrator wants us to just bank that for what's to come. And that's not the only thing that the narrator wants us to know about him. Every time he is mentioned, at least almost every time he is mentioned, it is brought up that he is an Edomite. Did you notice that? And this is not insignificant. The people of Edom had a centuries-long hostility with the people of God. In Numbers 20, it was the Edomites who wouldn't let Israel pass through when they fled from Egypt. In Psalm 137, it is the Edomites who taunt Jerusalem as Babylon is ravaging her. So while we don't know much about this mysterious man in the shadows named Doeg, we know that he's an Edomite, and therefore we know that he comes from a heritage of hatred. And he's here detained before the Lord. That phrase needs a little bit of explanation. We think probably what Doeg was there for, detained before the Lord, is he was undergoing some rite of purification that he needed to undergo before he could return to the king's court, before he could return to the king's service. But as we will find out about later, Doeg's heart is not tender towards Yahweh. If he is there detained before the Lord, going through some rite of purification, he's just checking a box because Doeg is all about himself. Fast forward to chapter 22, verse 6, and the second scene that I read comes before us. We, we get to be a fly on the wall of, of what one writer calls this, this ancient royal pity party. There sits Saul, in all his glory under the shade of the tree. He's got his spear in his hand, not just a sign of kingly authority, but a sign of what he's all about, violence. Word of David's whereabouts has gotten back to him, and do you notice he doesn't 
call David by name. He prefers to call him the son of Jesse. And Saul is sitting there holding court with his own, not just Israelites, but Benjamites, his own tribe, those whom he had given fields and lands and positions of power and authority. In 1 Samuel 18, Samuel warned about a king like this, a king who would show preferential treatment. It's this kind of thing, this kind of tribalism that will later contribute to the conflict within Israel and the eventual division among God's people. But even in this setting, Saul, among his own, is paranoid. And that paranoia is powerful. You you all conspire against me. None of you told me that my own son had made a covenant with the son of Jesse. How could you? Well, there's one ready and eager to step into this opportunity. A politically savvy Edomite who sees an opportunity for advancement and he jumps on it. Doeg steps forth. Well, I saw, I saw Ahimelech inquire of the Lord for David, give David provisions. Well, all of this Saul puts his thumb down, and what happens? Nobody moves. Nobody moves. You can't be serious, Saul. These these are the priests of Yahweh. I mean, this isn't some no-name village. But again, our villain Doeg steps in, having no scruples, He slaughters at Saul's command 85 priests. It's a bloodbath. It's grievous. The theologian Peter Lightheart points out the irony of what Saul does here. Back in chapter 15, Saul had refused to carry out God's judgment against the Amalekites. But here he ends up going to holy war against Yahweh himself by attacking his priest. How bold, how brazen. And all of this happened because of David. Because of the Lord's anointed. David says as much in verse 22. We've already read about his family being displaced. They need to be under the protection of the king of Moab. And now a whole city is gone because of David because of the hatred that Saul has for God's anointed. Well, that's the rehashing of the story. So what does that have to do with us? Well, as I thought about this story, so it is for us, brother, sister, as we follow God's anointed, as we follow the true anointed one, Jesus himself, as we defend his name, his honor, his word, what happens? We face opposition. And in one way or another, faithfulness to Jesus costs. 
Edomites are all around us. And we have a heritage of hatred growing and building in our society. It's happening in your workplaces, right? As you swim upstream to the values, to the agendas that are being shoved down your throat. It's happening in your families as you have had family members turn their backs on you because of your faithfulness to Christ. It's happening in society at large as you and I are being increasingly accused of being unloving, small-minded bigots, It's happening in Canada where pastors are being imprisoned for holding worship services. It's happening as the church is becoming increasingly marginalized. Brothers and sisters, it's not going to be getting any easier, I fear. The rising tide of secularism is upon us Following Jesus is going to continue to put us out of step with the world. And that's the fact that God's people will continue to experience the hatred of God's enemies. Following God's anointed costs. So the question is, are we prepared? Let me remind you of a few passages in this regard. Let me just read these to you. John 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but you are not of the world. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus also said in Matthew 5:44, "Pray for those who persecute you." Paul said to Timothy, young pastor, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted." And then Peter said to the church, "Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering so that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So what do we do in light of those passages, in light of this reminder and this reality? Well, let me first say this. We don't despair. But as Jesus tells us in Luke 14, we count the cost. How different this is than so much of the gospel, the false gospel that is being preached today. Right? Instead of the gospel being the path of least resistance, the road to your best life now, the gospel is actually the path to opposition. It's the path to loss. And yet, he who loses his life for my sake will gain it. 
And so we as the church stand firm against the rising tide in the confidence of his word and the confidence of his presence with those who do his will. Then as Peter says, we're not surprised. We can actually rejoice. We can rejoice that we've been chosen to share in Christ's suffering. In assisting David, the Lord's anointed, Ahimelech paid the ultimate price. I pray we won't have to pay the ultimate price, but I do know this. Following God's anointed will cost. That's the first thing. But as we move on, here's where I want to blow your minds a little bit. Because I want to show you how this passage reminds us that the actions of man seamlessly fit with the purposes of God. And so the second truth is this. Those who oppose God's anointed gain nothing. Those who oppose God's anointed gain nothing. You see, here is where the real balm of this passage is for us in a villainous and violent world. Ahimelech did the right thing, right? He did the right thing in helping David. Saul, through Doeg, did a horrible thing, right? Yes, those things are clear. And yet, both actions were used by the sovereign hand of Yahweh to accomplish his purpose. This is one of the the clear but mysterious truths that this passage brings to our attention. You see, if we were to turn, you don't need to turn there now, but if you were to turn in your Bibles back to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and 3, this is, this is pre-David, pre-Samuel times, you'd remember the story of Eli's sons. Eli was the priest. And his sons went off the rails, we might say. And in chapter 2, verse 17, it says that Eli's sons treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They didn't care about Yahweh. They didn't care about the sacred things of Yahweh. They played fast and loose with the things that Yahweh commanded. And Yahweh was not pleased. And so this is what the Lord says in chapter 2 of Uh, Chapter 2, verse 31 of 1 Samuel. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And then in chapter 3, verse 13. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity he knew, speaking of Eli, dad, because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. So what's the point, Nate? The point is this. 40 to 50 years prior to this event, Yahweh had pronounced judgment on Eli's house. Fast forward to 1 Samuel chapter 22, and as Saul swoops in to oppose God's anointed, he ends up carrying out the sentence of God. God. 
One commentator says it very succinctly this way. Even in opposing God's kingdom, God's enemies only bring to pass God's word. Even in opposing God's kingdom, God's enemies only bring to pass God's word. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that mind-blowing? But isn't it wonderful? Saul is responsible for his actions. Yes, his actions were brutal and wrong. Yes, Ahimelech is responsible. Yes, his actions were right. Yes, but in all of this, God is sovereign. And what happens when we know this, when we're reminded of this reality? Of course, there's still sorrow over the violence, over the the villain. But there is hope. Because while it may look like the enemies of God are prospering, their end is sure, and God's purposes are unbreakable. That's what this passage reminds us of. In all of its horror, in all of its bloodiness. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 52. I'm going to read to you this psalm. It's only nine verses. But I'm going to first read the title to you. Psalm 52, to the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Here's how David processes that event. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the ungodly. Confidence, trust, thanksgiving, it's all here. As David processes, as David views the villains in his life, the violence in his life, the opposition to him and God in his life through the lens of God's word. Be comforted, brothers and sisters, that yes, following God's anointed costs, but those who oppose God's anointed, they gain nothing. 
One other thing as we close this passage, one other thing that we see here is a remnant. A remnant. A lone survivor. A son of Ahimelech. A sign that God always preserves his people. It's a theme that we see over and over again through the scriptures. He makes his way back to David, and in verse 23 we read that David commits to being a guardian for the priesthood. In other words, this rejected, anointed one will save. Sound like anybody else? Peter would proclaim of him in Acts 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, but God raised him up. The news doesn't get any better. Yes, following God's anointed costs, but it is a worthwhile cost. It's a cost that's guaranteed by the promises of God and the certain victory over his enemies. So take heart, church. You, in the midst of everything, you are olive trees, flourishing, planted in the house of God, trusting, praising, remembering. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the encouragement of this passage, of this account for our hearts. It's not a pleasant scene. It's a mysterious scene. We, like David, say in, like David said in Psalm 139, how, how precious to me are your thoughts. They're so high, I, I can't, we can't understand them fully, and yet we cling to these promises. That while there is a cost to following Jesus as we live in this world, that no opposition can upend your purposes for us or for the glory of your name. Oh, Father, may these majestic truths filter and seep down into the nooks and crannies of our lives to the anxieties that we feel, the frustrations that we feel, the anger that boils within us. And Holy Spirit, use this in the lives of your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.